This is Bragg, son of Balin, and you're listening to Light the Beacons, a Lotro podcast. Welcome to the world of Middle-earth. calls for aid and Brog shall answer oh, I'm not answering Jack squat oh, stop shouting already everybody Shh. Grima I told you no recording tonight or maybe ever just leave me here to die Thank you, Toilet Bowl, for being cool on the side. No one understands me like you do. I swear, Grima, if you don't stop laughing, I am I am going to continue to lie here. Okay. I'm, I'm on Dean. Welcome back to Light the Beacons, a local podcast focusing on the recovering MMORPG Lord of the Rings Online as well as related topics in books, movies, gaming, and the lore of Sir Tokalot. Um... Uh... Turn... Grima! turn off the trumpets! What are you doing? Oh... You idiot! I am going to kill you. Don't ever do that again. I mean, was that really necessary? You did that on purpose, you little weasel. All right. So the trumpet fanfare was originally proposed for episode 42. And uh, here are a few facts about 42 that some of you may not be aware of. It is the third primary pseudo-perfect number. It is a Catalan number. Consequently, 42 is the number of non-crossing partitions of a five set of five elements, the number of triangulations of a heptagon, the number of rooted ordinary binary trees with six leaves, the number of ways in which five pairs of nested parentheses can be arranged. It is the atomic number of Malabidnim, the angle rounded to whole degrees for which a rainbow appears, the number of spots on a pair of standard six-sided dice, the board game Risk has 42 territories. The jersey number of Michael J. Fox's character Scott Howard in the 1985 teen film Teen Wolf. The jersey number of Jackie Robinson was the only number retired by all Major League Baseball teams. 42 is one of the numbers in the television series Lost, showing up frequently in various aspects of the show. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland has 42 illustrations. The password expiration policy for our Microsoft Windows domain defaults to 42 days. Bet you guys didn't know all that stuff, but now you know that I am capable of Googling a wiki. Um, so, 42 is a special number, and I'm proud to still be here, recovering the way I may be from the effects of last week's episode. I am your host, Bragg of the Lonely Mountain, and for the first time I'm going to repeat a title, Survivor of the Long Night, because it seems appropriate, and a Dwarfville repute to boot. Repute to boot, speaking of booting... 
let's move on. I'm broadcasting live from temporary LTB MEWHQ here in the men's bathroom stall of the Forsaken Inn. Boy, I really wish they had a roof on this place and that it wasn't raining. As you can see, I'm still suffering from the after effects of the final segment in our last episode uh, where we visited drunk Middle-earth lore. Uh, let's keep it short tonight, folks. Forget it. Let's just light our second beacon. All right. It's time for corrections, retractions, and apologies from last week. Oh boy, where do we start? Uh, I think I'd better skip this part this week. It would be the longest part of the podcast. Uh, in the retractions department, I think I spoke last week off the cuff to mention that uh, my prediction of Minas Tirith Update 17 release <coughs> was that it was not going to occur potentially until next year based on the uh, world transfer issues and hardware changes that are still forthcoming. And uh, lo and behold, Update 17 made beta this past week. If patterns hold, I may still be found to be truth, found to be truthful, or found to be to have looked ahead. But uh, if pattern holds, uh, typically uh, release to production comes about six weeks after a release to beta, which would put us in mid-November-ish. So it's still possible it could be delayed, but uh, I'm going to call it a retraction from now, seeing as how, although it's certainly not in final finished form, the uh, the main framework and structure of Minas Tirith appear to be there. So that's exciting, even for somebody as hungover as me. Uh, viewer comments. Bragginthorn wrote in with appreciation regarding uh, my, my uh, uh, inebriated meanderings last week. I also heard from Andang with a nod of approval regarding the podcast uh, when he got a chance to get around to looking at it. He is considering publishing a version to YouTube using my audio track, which would be pretty fun. So stay tuned for that. Um, I should mention that uh, last week on LTB, I made a reference to Braxwolf's Extra Life campaign. And one episode after mentioning it, Braxwolf's Extra Life campaign is canceled. So, uh... It's the old LTB kiss of death jinx that's going on here. Apologies for laying that on you. Uh, and uh, you're welcome. So for my next trick, I'm going to advocate Denethor to continue on as steward of Gondor and lead us through the perils of the coming siege. With his wisdom, leadership, and just all around fiery personality, I can assure you we will be in good hands. Community Spotlight. The transfer seemed to be going well. I've heard uh, numerous stories about uh, about transfers going as good or better than expected. You know, of course, there'll always be people complaining about some some naming issues or uh, a few one-offs here and there where things were not wholly transferred. Uh, apparently, uh, I think the most credible critique I heard was that the amount of announcements coming from Turbine regarding the timing and when world transfers are available for each particular world has been underwhelming. Um, you know, you can get an announcement in-game, but if you're not logged into the game, obviously it's not going to help you. If you don't patrol the forums, it's not going to help you. I would think an email blast to affected world players would be, uh, or some kind of published schedule on the launcher would be apropos. 
my transfer still doesn't feel imminent. Billy is at the bottom of the list. I'm still thinking that's going to be late November-ish, so it's not not reality for me yet. Uh, still no final determination from my side about where I'm going. I'll worry about it later. Um, I know a, uh, a number of people that are going to Arkenstone from Villia, a number of people that are going to Landreville. You know, and I started to think, will Landreville be too RPE and get in the way? And I enjoy a little RP here and the, RP here and then, but I don't want it thrust down my throat if it's not my primary game style of play. So, is it too RPE, or can you just exist in Landreville and do what you would do in other servers as long as your name is appropriate and you uh, don't want to get accosted in uh, the Prancing Pony? Don't know. Um, got a few characters there. Maybe I'll just traipse around a bit and get a feel for the uh, for the chat as well as some of the the main grouping areas. Forums Insider been too under the weather for that. Hungover forum perusing is not my cup of tea. So in this week's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about what we've been doing in game. We're going to discuss the problem with the predictions that the future of MMOs will be on mobile platforms. And we're going to discuss my experience atop the Dome of Stars. If there's any time remaining, we will roast the boar of Everholt over a slow-burning fumarole at about 200 degrees for 14 hours before slathering him with Bombor's secret barbecue sauce. Mmm. Now that's the kind of grease fest that could cure my malaise. Let's move on to our next beacon. Nardal, this week in gaming and other Tolkien news. Come on, beacon, light. Light. There we go. What the heck was that? Grima, get off the soundboard, you idiot. So, listen. Um, I started Portal 2 this past week. Didn't get very far, but it was a great start already. Really engaged me. I'm eager to get back in and play it some more. It's such a great change of pace from an MMO. Um, it's uh, really kind of an interesting or fascinating evolution to uh, to an A title in gaming versus the original kind of trial that came out from Steam uh, with the first Portal game. Um, this one is more fully fleshed out. You can see the production values in the way the game starts and how they engage you. The voice acting, again, is superb. The puzzles are fun. So, so far, so good on Portal 2. I did not get into other MMOs this week, such as DDO, The Secret World, or Marvel Heroes. Uh, Clash of Clans, little milestone. Got my first character to max level. My healer is now tier 4. Only took about 3 million elixir to get her there. Uh, still upgrading walls in Clash of Clans at about 500,000 gold per click, which could mean months of grinding if I'm not buying gems, and I'm not, to get to the next level up. Uh, let's talk about Lotro. Lotro Update 17 Beta came out this past week. I am not going there. You guys have probably read the release notes. You've probably heard about it from other podcasts. There's lots of flaming marshmallows being reported, jumping from the top of uh, you know the the Tower of Ecthelion. And uh, there's also two new uh, Beyond Boss Fights. No, two new uh, epic battles that are in the um, that are in the new release. Uh, they both have solo duo modes, as well as one can extend to a six-man and the other one to a three-man. So those are four new big battle um, 
you know, uh, big battle partitions that you can use to generate big battle points. And I'm thinking that'll put this thing over the tip to, you know, you don't have to be a heavy big battle player uh, with these two new battles in place in addition to Pilar gear to achieve the 200 point level in order to get an additional class trade point. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't be surprised if they put a level 300 class trade point available as part of the rollout because I would think that some players uh, would be able to reach that tier if they started gold and platinuming most of the other big battles that were available. But it should make the, the two class trade points available for big battles pretty easy to get for those of you who are not hardcore in to them and I could see um, generating those on some of my other characters now. Um, I don't want to talk too much about the release. I've heard a few good things regarding quality of life improvements that continue to be rolled out, which is neat. Um, I do think I agree with some of the people that have been saying that uh, Turbine's era of uh, coming closer to listening to the player is continuing, and it's really something, in retrospect, that they need to do if they're going to continue to put out these kinds of releases without a major expansion. Um, you know, those are encouraging signs for the community. It keeps people engaged and hopeful about the future of the game. Uh, one more comment regarding big battles. I don't know if this is in the release or not. But can we take a look at fixing the officer and vanguard lines and making them playable now? Or at least help people understand why they are good and why they might be necessary in some cases in big battles? Because right now it's just terrible. You know, there's something about them that makes them not fun to play. They may be impactful to the outcome of a big battle, but it's abstracted in a way that's really difficult to understand. Um, you know, when I put points in a red tree in a big battle for Vanguard line, I, you know, I, and I'll say I'll say it out loud. Have I played big battles extensively using the red line fully traded? No, I have not. But I don't understand why I should. <laughs> I don't understand how the skills really work, how they play into helping you achieve some of the uh, outcomes of the big battle. Same thing for officer line. Yes, I can issue commands more quickly, and the commands are more effective, but you just stand there next to lieutenant and issuing commands all day? Boring. Don't get it. So I really think uh, they need reworking either in their PR campaign around why you might want to use them to help achieve objectives, or just to make them more fun. Uh, and uh, easily understandable. So let me know if you use either Vanguard or Officer Lines extensively. Everyone I know is an engineer. Do you know anyone else that uses these? Good question. So, uh, what have I been doing in game this week? From a Lotro perspective, uh, Bragg uh, took some time out to go back and solo the Halls of Night Tier 1. Uh, got a Relic Removal Scroll in the final chest. Uh, was fairly simple to solo as a Guardian, even though it's a three-man instance. Uh, I've heard other people doing so frequently as well. But um, I still didn't get the deed that I wanted for the emote, which is the reason I ran the skirmish. So I went out and I looked at the instructions about the side quest or the challenge to get the emote and it includes in the final boss battle not killing any tortured spirits which are off to the right and to the left of the uh, of the boss so I went back in and I soloed tier one um, halls of night again and in this time at the final boss battle I was very careful to stand in the middle of the room and not kill any tortured spirits I was 100% sure I had not and I still didn't get the invite on the plus side I got a tomb of fate in the final chest out of it running it on tier one which ain't bad 
So, uh, after a little more research and some shaky, um, some shaky opinions back and forth about how this has evolved over time, my best guess was I really needed to do it on Tier 2 to win the emote. So I soloed the Halls of Night Tier 2 up to the first boss and then found two other people that were willing to come in and join me. Uh, it, it turned out to be an LM and a champ. So LM, champ, guard. Kind of a slightly unusual um, combo with uh, certainly lackluster heals. And as a matter of fact, on the second boss, our champ got locked out of the boss fight, and it was just myself and myself and the LM, and we were able to burn him down, which was fun. Um, I tried to solo the first side boss on just my guard, and uh, he hit hard, and I got killed quickly. That's when I called for help. So, uh, reflections on Tier 2. First of all, the loot sucked. <laughs> Worse than what I got in the Tier 1s. No, no fun items like uh, tombs or relic removal scrolls coming out of the final chest. Um, but I did complete challenge mode, which had a nice medallions payoff, as well as a title. And uh, and the emote, Dream. So for those of you who don't have the Dream emote, it's kind of a fun one. Your character stretches out in a big, long yawn before fainting on the ground. So it's very similar to the faint emote, except for the big, long stretch and yawn that comes before it. Um, always fun to get more emotes, emotes for the character. Uh, so aside from that... Uh, Brad got into a Dome of Stars run, finally, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, my Bjorning followed the epic story into Wildemore, uh, going through the Entwade, Lotro, uh, Entwade, Entwade intro and down to Snowborn, uh, before coming up into Wildermore, uh, going into the first town there, Skiflig, before finding Forlaw. And um, the instance in Skiflig that I remembered when you encounter Nurzum and he bats Thrym, you know, three million feet uh, out of the park, is not part of the epic apparently. So I, I didn't remember that. I think it's part of the side quest that you do around Skiflig that results in that instance. So it's kind of interesting. Wildermore had a storyline that was very closely interwoven with the epic. And, um, you know, in retrospect now, you know, even though I've played through it a few times, I've never done just one or just the other. I've always did a combination of both. So it's, uh, you know, I'm reminding myself now which quests are related to which. And they tread a very careful line in that territory around the story elements and how they played out both in the epic quest line versus the uh, environment questing. Uh, so the Bjorning's 81 now, and uh, you know, working his way up to Hypebolt still. Uh, my minstrel followed the epic quest line in Eastern Gondor all the way to the Culverts. Um, just following the epic and not doing any of the side quests in East Gondor is it's not very satisfying, but it's decently quick with good rewards. You can get gold essences, uh, crystal, uh, amphalas crystals, scrolls of empowerment, and jewelry just from following the epic line in Eastern Gondor. And my mini did pretty well in the city. I don't think I even died once completing all the four rangers and related side quests through Esgiliath. And uh, Minstrel is now poised at Sunken Labyrinth, hoping for a group. And if I don't find one shortly, I'll solo it on level 50, as I've done with some of my other tunes. Cappy and Loremaster have done nothing, but the majority of my time has been spent on my Berg. And uh, in the Berg sweet spot right now, um, certainly a... Uh, a melee machine with my deeding. So my Berg is probably, in retrospect, I think, um, had the worst situation in terms of traits of any character that I've ever gotten a level cap. And I think that's a function of, you know, as the game goes on, 
and you level someone you know with so much content under the bridge and you bypass a lot of the side quests which you've done multiple times you can get to level 100 pretty quickly without finishing many slayer or explorer deeds and uh so he she was uh, perhaps in the worst shape of any tune i've ever gotten to 100 in terms of traits i think most of her traits were in the six to eight range or something like that so so it has been a deed fest for the berg including uh, goblins in the Shire, Barrow Spiders in Bree, Shire Farm uh, Explorer Deed, Anuminos Leaders uh, from Instances, Anuminos Locations, Kurgrim Slayers in Evendim, Trollshaw Trolls, Trollshaw Locations, North Down Goblins, Orcs in Angmar, uh, mostly done through a, a run through of Urgarth, then through Camps of Eastern Malinhad, uh, Worms in Forakel, Wolves and Crane, Crabane in Eregion, Maryville in Moria, which is worth two virtues, thank you, as well as Cave Claws in Moria. Explorer Deeds in Stangard, Wildermore, and Eastern Rohan. I think there were, I found maybe six Explorer Deeds in Eastern Rohan that all led to traits that I was working on. So um, it's been kind of fun running around Rohan and doing the Explorer Deeds and kind of reacquainting myself from the content. I haven't been there with a tune, well, not extensively. My Bjorning's been through there to some degree. Um, so now my virtues uh, seven through tens are, you know, were tens through fourteens last week, and now they're all fourteen through eighteen. So getting pretty close to nineteen, and what it should feel like to have full five fully traded lines up to nineteen. Hopefully by the next podcast I'll be done with deeding. You got to do it in cycles so you don't burn out, um, and I'm probably getting pretty burnt pretty soon. But pretty soon I'll be getting up to on level content slaying and deeding, which at least will be more rewarding if a little slower and one thing I do as I'm exploring is I, I typically try to make sure that my tunes are discovering some of the instance entrances which will earn you medallions such as um, North Cotton Farm, Stone Heights, Lost Temple, all from the In Your Absence line, and opening up Dragok, which as a Berg obviously is important. And I've uh, never been in Dragok as a Berg, which is kind of a critical role, obviously, triggering the FMs on the, on the carcass on the floor. So I'm um, looking forward to finding a group to do that at some point with my Berg. Um... On my Berg, I also have one class trait deed still pending. So out of all my hundreds, this is the only class trait deed I still have pending on any of my tunes. Um, he needs, uh, basically the reason he hasn't gotten it is it's a, kind of a difficult one. It's, um, it's an enemy resisting your trick removal skills or riddle. And obviously, if you're deeding, you're doing underlevel mobs for the most part, and there's very little chance that they're going to be resisting. <laughs> Although I've done a lot of sheer volume, uh, the chance for them to resist skills uh, when they're dramatically underleveled is basically nil. So I'll have to get out some on-level deeding in order to finish off that last, I think I may need like 12 out of 75. Uh, it's slow coming because I guess the resist on those things, I would bet, is maybe 1 in 20. I'm not sure even. So... Um, so that'll be the last class trade point for my Berg, and uh, they'll have all they can get aside from big battles at that point. Um, I did notice on my other tunes that my Hunter, that's level 92, I was going through, and I realized that they were uh, kindred with the Maladrim and kindred with the Galadrim. 
and not with the elves of Rivendell, which is kind of silly because if you go to the skirm camps, elvish relics for Rep and Rivendell are pretty cheap to come by for marks. So I just uh, finished off um, my Kindred deed for Rivendell Rep for my hunter. Uh, so if you have the, done the Galadrim and the Maladrim, you've, you've done the hard parts. Don't forget the easy part. Buy your Elvish Relics at a skirm, skirm Camp and achieve Ambassador to the Elves Deed, which gives you the nice deed uh, for my hunter. So that was done. And no love for the RK Warden or Champ. Their time will come. But in the meantime, let's move on to our next speaking. Aralas. Ugh. Grind us some water, please. More as more Athlas, please. Need some Athlas. Thanks. Okay, so in Aralos this week, um, I watched a video this past week, which is a current favorite of uh, one of the young dwarves in the house, who's uh, about ten years old, and it's a popular YouTube series called Game Theory, and. Uh, my, my young dwarf listens to game theory incessantly. There's dozens of them out on YouTube at this point. And the guy's got a good following. He gets a couple million hits on each and every uh, on each and every video that he publishes. So he's doing okay for himself. I will say that his voice gets a bit grating after a while because it is in your face and insistent. And uh, I get tired of hearing it after a while. So although the videos are a little schlocky and they're definitely aimed at a younger audience with very short attention spans. The one thing I'll grant him is that he does his homework. Um, he does a lot of research and he embellishes the videos. He kind of bombards you with images and sounds and quick tropes, but, uh, but he does do his homework. So he published one this week saying, uh, entitled, Is the MMO Dying? And he, um, he references a number of articles that you may have seen around the net over the last year and a half about the dying of the MMO genre. And he says, is, is this a thing or is this, uh, you know, is this data being misinterpreted? Um, in the video, he researches some of the earliest forms of MMOs out there in the back in the 80s, uh, running on ARPANET before they had the internet. Uh, they were called MUDs or multi-user dungeons. And they were extremely expensive. <laughs> you were paying for internet by the internet or ARPANET by the hour back then. Uh, the games, uh, the MUDs were only running uh, in the middle of the night, so it was difficult to log on to find time to play them. They were text-based. You had to group with other people. Mostly they were being joined by college students from places like MIT and, and other engineering schools. And uh, some of the early subscription models for some of these MMOs would run up to hundred over 100 bucks a month easy. So he goes on to the next evolution of the games where graphics started being introduced, Neverwinter and EverQuest are ones he mentions, uh, as bandwidth increased and internet became uh, more available through services like AOL and CompuServe and the like. And uh, he does argue that the cost to play games has stayed the same for MMOs for the last decade, hovering around the $10 to $15 a month range. But the cost to produce these massive worlds has gone up significantly to meet user expectations, getting into the hundreds of millions of dollars for games such as uh, SWOTOR and the like. So for modern games such as Lotro, which he claims in this video to be dead, by the way. <laughs> so he goes on to say he doesn't believe the MMO genre is dying. He believes it's moving. Um, and that its future is in the mobile platform, pointing to games such as you know Kate Upton's Cleavage of War game, 
and he calls them MMOs, Mobile Massive Multiplayer Online Games. Um, he's got a point in that content is being consumed more and more um, in our society in short bursts uh, as we're becoming conditioned to by social media, Twitter, Facebook, and the like, YouTube videos, quick pop hits. And uh, it's not surprising that we're doing more of our gaming in these short bursts as well, using mobile platforms, filling in free minutes. Um, so his claim is that you know, it's the MMOs are not going anywhere. They're just entering the next phase. He said, free-to-play is not perfect, but the financial model that Game of War represents seems to be what people prefer now, where you can do in-game micro-purchases, such as gems and Clash of Clans, in order to kind of accelerate your progress. And there's, you know, you can't argue there's definitely markets for that. It seems the Far East is definitely uh, uh, all in in this type of, uh, in that type of gaming environment as well. But I would argue that there's um, in, innate limitations in the mobile and tablet market <clears throat> in terms of controls and the real estate on the screen. And uh, in order to, the MMOs that I've seen coming out on tablets um, or even on a phone, you know, I know the phones are getting bigger and the tablets are getting smaller in some cases, but bigger in cases, other cases as well. Um, they are. Uh, you know the, the the games that I've seen have to dumb down the controls and the amount of information available to you as part of the game UI uh, to such a level that I think it's dumbing down the genre completely to the fact to the point where it's a it's a different genre. I wouldn't call it an MMO. You could argue it's an MMO because there are other players out there and it shares a lot of the same types of goals and functions as uh, traditional MMOs, um, but. In my mind, it's it's a different flavor. So don't don't get me wrong. There's an audience for it, but it's not going to replace the PC MMO, in my opinion. Anyone that's played to that level of depth and complexity will never consider those games a replacement. Uh, but they could augment or supplement to cater to different channels, different audiences, different demographics, and different gaming opportunities. So I play Clash of Clans in short bursts because it's mobile, but it will never replace an MMO for me. It's just filling out a niche in my gaming profile or portfolio. The problem is that niche that it's filling in is time that people used to spend reading books, talking to each other, or just thinking, and they may not necessarily be a good thing. Um, I think these types of games are bringing new people to gaming and that the audience may be larger. So the question is, will the easy money flocking to those types of game creations be too lucrative to pass up? so that no gaming companies want to make a risky AAA title that costs hundreds of millions of dollars anymore, and the genre dies off that way. It becomes somewhat a self-fulfilling self prophecy. Uh, I think most mediums of entertainment find balance as the pendulum swims, swings back and forth to create content that fills all the different market segments, but it's not unrealistic to think that our options may become slimmer over time as more and more companies flock to these somewhat easier to manufacture games. That's my take on MMO mobile gaming. They're doing more and more with the UI in order to diversify the kinds of games you can play on the tablet, but there's only so clever you can get with the ability to hit the screen in the two corners with your thumbs.
So until the UI evolves beyond that, uh, beyond those tactile areas, uh, I think it is going to be an innate limitation that will limit what we can do from the types of games that can be played on a tablet. There's still room for them to grow, though, so count on that. All right, that's enough about my speculation. Let's move on to our next beacon. Min Rimon, and now the original word from our sponsor segment. This episode of LTB is brought to you by... What? Grammy, you've got to be kidding me. It's not funny. Jeez. Oh, this episode of LTB is brought to you by the In-League. Are you a purveyor of fine spirits with an unquenchable thirst for life and a mischievous twinkle in your eye? Then the in-league could be just the thing for you. Come by one of our membership drives, quaff a brew or six, and see what happens. We're the in-league raiders, we're raiders of the night, we're dirty little dwarf lords and we'd rather chug than fight, so heedy, heidi, thrain almighty, who the heck are we? Chug, duck, trust your luck, and toast the league with me. Can't believe they made me sing that. They better be paying a decent fee. All right, let's move on to our sixth beacon, Callanhat. Callanhat this week. Um, my character Bragg finally got into the Dome of Stars this past week, at least on Tier One. Yes, it's been months since Osgiliath uh, Eastern Gondor has been released, and I am just now getting to it. Why is that? I've been moving multiple tunes to the content. Um, it took me a while. I was savoring the time it took me to get there. And to tell you the truth, I think it's partly a reflection of the server I am on right now. I am starting to see a lot of the same faces over and over, night to night, calling for groups. And the types of groups they call for are fairly predictable. So there is not as much variety, and there is not as much... Um, you know, just not as much raiding or grouping as there has been in the past. I think people are taking a collective breath before they move and transfer servers. And uh, certainly I am looking forward to the consolidation and the additional grouping opportunities um, that those will afford. As I've mentioned in the past, uh, some of my grouping experiences in Lotro have been some of my most satisfying gaming experiences, period. I do like to quest and solo quest and get through the environmental content as well. But I do prefer to group, you know, periodically to, for a change of pace, and obviously to uh, accelerate the gearing up of my tunes in some cases. So I did get into a Dome of Stars um, pug this past week, and it's one of the few times I've really seen a pug called for uh, for the Dome of Stars. So we did run on tier one, and when everyone joined the group, we found out that no one in the group had done the instance before. So it was fun from that perspective, discovering it together and not having anyone in. The the group that knew what to expect, what the strategies were, or what we should be accomplishing. But as you could imagine, it made for a lengthy um, grouping experience. So here are some of the things I learned while going through Dome of Stars Tier 1. Uh, obviously, Tier 2 mileage will vary and will be much tougher. Uh, first of all, as you go through the trash around uh, the Dome of Stars, kill the captains first. The mortal captains lend 85% mitigations to all the mobs that are around them, typically as you work your way through the trash. So they should be focused on uh, as the primary. The second, uh, Morgul Warriors often cannot be aggroed, or at least they might have a aggro, random aggro component. So make sure your squishies are aware and ready to run away from those guys if they do attract attention. Uh, 
Uh, the Morgul archers you fight in the trash uh, get corruptions that make them dangerous in terms of the arrows they shoot. Um, so good to use corruption removal on the archers or fear them. Um, I did read some guides where uh, liberal use of the minstrel skill... Um, what's it called fall asleep or it's the one where um where you can you can flash a group and they're basically their awareness uh, or their aggro range is decreased significantly to the point where you can walk by them typically without having to fight them so um i've, I've read in multiple cases that uh song of distraction is it that 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 skill can be useful in avoiding a lot of the fighting that you have to do in between bosses in this instance so please keep that in mind um, there are some poisons and diseases that uh, that will hit you very hard in in from coming from certain mobs. Uh, bursting boils is one that will remove 70% of your morale unmitigated and basically kill everybody that's nearby you when it goes off. So might want to keep an eye out for that one. <laughs> uh, get away from the group when you see it and alert the mini of a need for a massive heal uh, that you're gonna that's gonna be coming up for you soon. So the first boss is a giant oliphant, spoiler alert. His name is Upal Kang. And I learned later, this didn't apply to us, maybe we just killed him quickly enough, but he has a timer, and four or five minutes after the fight starts, he becomes enraged and starts doing four to five hundred percent damage. So uh, this is, in effect, a DPS race. And um, the only other th thing that I think was, it was a fun fight. Um, there are spawn points periodically where ads will join from four different corners of the map around and uh, We found that was the key to beating that boss. I think we failed the first time and the second time we said let's uh, Go right near one of the spawn points where um, you know any ads coming from right make sure we're clustered fairly close together where they're right on the back of the Oliphant uh, So they're within taunting range of the guard um, and I can grab the ones coming out of the spawn point I was standing next to and by grabbing more of the ads as they came out from the different areas um, And keeping them off our squishies. We were able to get through the fight. No problem. So that was the key for that uh, the second boss is actually optional um, as you work through the area uh, of the Easterlings, right before you climb the bridge to the Dome of Stars, um, there are scouts in the area, which if you don't burn them down quickly or crowd control them in some way, will summon groups, which could be dangerous on Tier 2. Tier 1 for us was really not a problem, but look out for the scouts in that area that will run back and, and grab help. So basically, you work your way around the fountain um, in the Easterlings area, and if you want to fight the second boss fight, you have to kill uh, five of the pinion sorcerers, uh, which are clustered around that area. Some of the groups around that area, and in fact, leading all through the instance, are basically optional. You can bypass them if you hug one side or the other, so keep a, look, a lookout that you don't have to drain all the trash mobs. Uh, you can skip quite a few of them if you're careful. So, um, if you kill the five pinion sorcerers, you, you trigger the second boss battle again, which is optional. We want to do it since none of us have been in there before, uh, which is to fight our old buddy from Dunland, Rook. So, we've seen him uh, west of Galtrev, we've seen him west of, uh, west of uh, Snowborn riding an A-Bank, and now we encounter him in the Dome of Stars instance in Osgiliath. And I will say, he's still pretty pathetic, but his power is growing. He's got a couple hundred thousand morale now. So, uh, for the second instance, um, 
you want to watch out. The one reason we died in this in this part was because not everybody ran down the hill uh, when the fight started, and several several folks were cut off by the crows that fly back and forth in front of the hill and kind of seal it off. So you want to make sure you move into the platform where Rook is as a group. Uh, move around the square like a clock, taking out each of the sorcerers in turn. You won't be able to engage Rook until all four are dead. The first one goes down like butter. The second one a little more slowly. The third one even more slowly. And basically, <clears throat> the adds they summon over time pile up uh, to the point where uh, when you're on the fourth guy, you've got quite a few of them out there, and it can be a little dangerous. Um, you know, so keep close to the tank so he can uh, taunt off the adds as they as they join the group. And watch out for spinners. Spinners are the um, are the warriors that uh, you know their their swords rotate, which means they're basically on 100% reflect damage. And uh, if you hit them with bleeds, they will reflect bleeds. So it's best to DPS race, focus on the sorcerers, and try to heal through. Uh, AOE the Crabane if there's no warriors in reflect mode. Uh, but because uh, they do grant a bunch of debuffs and buffs. Um, the sorcerers themselves, when they're surrounded by Crabane, basically have 95% mitigations and will summon more Crabane if you attack them at that point. So uh, so watch out when they have the Crabane shield up. Wait for it to go down. Burn them down. AoE any crow that are there. And watch out for sorcerer uh, full reflect spinning swords, and you should be good. Doesn't sound too bad, right? <laughs> Okay, so um, as you get into the Dome of Stars itself, you have to find two Morgul Wardens in order to get up to the platform where the Black Blade of Labinan is. Um, I, we could have done this type, this area faster if we knew known where they are, and now I know where they were this time around, but from other descriptions I've read, I'm of the opinion that they might be randomly placed within the two levels uh, within the Dome of Stars. So it might take some searching to find them, the second one should definitely be on the platform to the right as you walk in, right next to the stairs that take you up. But the first one, I think, can be one of multiple locations. And there are pathers walking around. I think they're called uh, constables or something. They have like a couple hundred thousand morale. They're not deadly, but they're just a pain to burn through. So best to avoid as many of them as possible. So as you're working through this area, one thing to remember is when you kill a wraith guard, Make sure to finish his spirit quickly, so when you kill him, a spirit comes out, and the spirit does an AoE shadow damage, a couple thousand a tick, I think. Um, so not bad for a tank if there's only one, but you want to make sure you kill him off before you um, before you generate more uh, more spirits, because if there's several of them out there, they can you know burn you down pretty quickly, and certainly the squishies. Uh, we lost a few squishies when that happened in one or two cases. So. Finding the two Morgul Wardens will open up the door to the final boss fight. And here we have a classic arena in the, the Dome of Stars. Um, you want to stay near the center of the platform because uh, the blade will do a knockback, which could uh, knock you off the platform, obviously, if you're not in the right place. So keep that in mind. It's a five-stage fight. In Tier 1, it's, it's fairly simple. Um, you fight the Blade of Labinan for a while until he gets down below a certain threshold. Uh, then you fight the blade plus spirits that come out. Spirits are not difficult, but uh, if you kill them, they create poison clouds, which you have to get out of quickly. 
So the fight becomes a big, a bit mobile as you circle or backpedal around the fountain. Uh, the blade will then summon three champions: Mazog, Gorachor, and uh, Hufumshila. I forget the third. Oh, Gorathal. That's right. And uh, each of those guys has a different debuff they put on the party. So right when the first, when three of them, the three of them come out, um, you get three debuffs on top of the blade, and that could be a tough moment. So you might want to blow some cooldowns when the three of them first appear until you can kill one or two of them. And get rid of those uh, get rid of those uh, debuffs that are on you. I heard in challenge mode you have to keep one of them alive through the whole fight, um, and uh, the choice I've heard is Mazog. So after you finish the three champions, you fight the Fell Beast. He was a pushover. It was fun to kill a Fell Beast. Loved that. And then finally the Blade. Uh, the Blade himself throughout the fight uh, is generating corruptions that you want to keep off him. So you want to remind the Fellowship to be hitting him with corruption removals through the whole fight. He'll hit you with fears that make you run away or put a dot over your head where you have to run away manually uh, not to infect those around you or that could cause a wipe. Um, and occasionally he does distributed damage and this is uh, where I died in the fight. Um, I think I was basically standing alone with no one else around me and I got one shot. And I looked through my combat logs and I couldn't see what happened really but I think based on the description it sounds like he hit me with a distributed damage attack that I took alone. And uh, luckily, our RK healer had Do Not Die This Day on me, so I was able to come back. Uh, lastly, when the blade gets below, you know, I think it's one or 200,000 morale, uh, he gets a finality buff. Uh, at that point, it becomes a, a DPS race to finish him off before that gets too crazy. So, uh, my impressions. The instance is a little too long for my tastes. I'm sure you can do it faster if you know what groups you can skip. Obviously, boss two is optional, so there's a lot of things that can make it quicker. But there's a lot of trash in there and a lot of ground to cover. Uh, the environment in Asgillith is great. Uh, the boss battles are good. I would say complexity of some of the boss battles seems a little greater than the average six-man that I've had experience with in the past. It feels more like kind of raid level in terms of how closely I would assume in tier two you would have to pay attention to the different buffs, debuffs, corruptions, etc. Um, you know, there's basically I would say one more layer or two more layers of complexity in terms of things to watch out for in the boss fight, final boss fight, than I think you would typically see in a lot of six mans from from Moria or Mirkwood or other areas. So um, between complexity and length, I think I know what it's why it's never almost never called for for pugging at least on Vilia. Uh, I would like to go back and do tier two with a good group at some point, but I can't see grinding this instance ten or twenty times like you did with the six mans in Moria, or um, you know some of the ones in Isengard maybe. Um, it does act as a nice capstone to the Asgillia story. So overall, I give it a B for brag. Okay, it's time for blessed relief, and it can come too quickly. Maybe some dry white toast. That brings us to the end of the 42nd episode of Light the Beacons, and you now know the answer to Lotro, the universe, and everything. I would love to hear your plaudits, feedback, rants, diatribes, and most of all, your constructive critique. Specifically, you may be aware that there are additional episodes of Middle-Earth lore that are published and that are forthcoming in the months ahead. Please let me know if you thought that segment was amusing or if you found it overlong, boorish, and sophomoric. Either way, 
I'd appreciate knowing. If you might like to see an additional uh, episode of Drunken Middle-Earth Lore in the future. And uh, I don't intend to do it unless people tell me that they enjoyed it and they'd like to see more. So please write in if you can and let me know. You can contact me at bragsonofbound at gmail.com. That's Bragg with two A's. The two A's currently stand for Alcoholics Anonymous. On Facebook or Twitter at Bound or my website at lightthebeacons.com where you can post comments directly on the podcast. I kindly request you to make the time to create an iTunes review. I think I begged last time and uh, still got nothing. I'd very much appreciate it. If your comments incite me to forgo my dwarven apathy, I will try to include them in the podcast or respond in some way. So I hope you laughed mostly at me, I'm sure, this episode. You might have learned at least a little something you didn't know before, perhaps looked at the game with a slightly different perspective. And most of all, I hope you enjoy your week in Middle Earth. This is Bragg, son of Balance, signing off. Baruch Kazad. And remember, the next time you're in a raid, embroiled in the big boss fight while gaming on your mobile device, and a call from your mom comes through to ask about your Thanksgiving plans coming home from school, don't despair. Light the beacons.